This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and we've got another great message for you. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. Let's pray before we draw our attention to the scripture. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may you open our ears for what you would have for us to discover in the scriptures today. May you have your way with our minds, our hearts, and the way in which we are to love our neighbors. Amen. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 24. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The word of the Lord. When I was entering into my teen years, there was this new album that was released, and it captivated me. Uh, This album still does that to me when I get a chance to listen to it, and it was called The Bends by Radiohead. One song in particular out of the track list I found really meaningful at the time, and it was called Fake Plastic Trees. And the song is sung from the perspective of a female narrator, and she, uh, who was once pure, is now tainted by consumerism, and social pressures are converging on her and she just feels this pressure that she has to live a fake life. She wants everything around her to be real and true and have meaning, but social pressures entrap her into something fake. And the chorus repeats that it wears her out. It wears her out. The second verse reads that she lives with a broken man a cracked polystyrene man who just crumbles and burns. He used to do surgery for girls in the 80s, but gravity always wins. And so there's this broken man now trying to make a lasting effect on people around him. And he's trying to help them truly fit in into this fake world. But it was fruitless to begin with. And the second chorus reads that it wears him out. It wears him out. And the third chorus is, it wears them out. This song is an interrogation on the fakeness of culture. And it was much like that time period we had films like Fight Club or bands like Rage Against the Machine. And there was this huge swell in the alternative punk and grunge scene. And they were all criticizing inauthentic life and the fakeness of culture. In today's passage, you have one of the most beautiful endings of the New Testament letter, but it also is often misunderstood because of how lofty and unrealistic it might sound, right? Always joyful, thankful in every circumstance. How does does anyone live this way? 
Perhaps the most well-known caricature of Christianity in popular culture is Ned Flanders uh, from The Simpsons. He's this over-the-top, he's a comically cheerful evangelical neighbor out of, who is um, humorously out of touch with the world. If you don't know Ned Flanders, you should Google YouTube some clips of him. But he is kind of displayed over and over again in the show as this uh, caricature, he's this plastic Christian, right? But any honest reading of the Bible and any honest attempt to follow Jesus and you have likely discovered that it's anything but easy. In fact, scripture says anyone who attempts to live a godly life will encounter greater hardships. True joy doesn't mean that you're always having this happy, clappy demeanor. A joy and thanksgiving can be experienced even in the deepest lament. You see, bands like Radiohead, what I appreciated about them and Rage Against the Machine, or even modern shows like a Black, Black Mirror, they appropriately criticize culture. They're kind of secular shows, uh, secular prophets that are pulling back the curtain and showing everyone how deep these issues really are. And while it interrogates the problem, it doesn't offer a solution for where hope is found. And if I'm brutally honest, it's music like this and shows like these in my adolescent years that led me to crippling despair and depression because there's a greater understanding of all the problems that are around us, but there is no hope, no peace in sight. And that's why passages like this are so important. How do we live in light of the presence of God when everything around us seems to be burning? So I want to talk briefly about four things. First, I'll briefly touch on uh, the context um, of the church in Thessalonica at the time. Uh, we'll talk about how habits produce character. This is a line from C.S. Lewis, that habits, what are the habits of these people that set them apart, these early Christians? A life of spiritual discernment, um, testing everything. And then finally, it's not all on you. And we see that as a pattern of the New Testament, and that's a source of encouragement. And so first, briefly on the context, Thessalonica is a Roman imperial city. It's one with an intimate connection with Rome itself, uh, and a city like many other days where there's worship of the emperor. If you're a Christian in the city, and you, it, there's this call to refuse and participation of those practices, you see, Christians in that time, they didn't just look weird. They didn't just dress like, they weren't dressed like Ned Flanders or anything like that. You were more than that. You were dangerous. Uh, you were a threat to the status quo. Uh, you were a threat to the power. You were subversive. To declare that Jesus is Lord in that day was to declare that Nero was not or Caesar was not. Uh, Jesus is Lord is, was a rebellion. And I would argue it still is. Christians died because they would not submit to the emperor. Countless Christians died. There, were, there are um, stories that are told that emperors were burned Christians as uh, light, like lighting them as torches for their backyard parties in that time. So the gospel had to be so much more than just a weekly gathering to them or a hobby. The gospel had to produce a true, tangible hope in their life. It had to be beyond a worldview or a platitude. 
Now, a number of biblical scholars consider this letter to the church in Thessalonica to be um, not just the first letter written by Paul, uh, but actually the first, the oldest text in the New Testament, potentially the oldest text in the New Testament, I should say. And if that's true, then these closing words, this is the earliest Christian benediction. And this letter is written to a church, which is a small suffering community. We see themes in this letter that address loss of loved ones. Uh, people were dying and people were suffering and lamenting. And yet these words are so beautiful, but they seem so out of touch with sometimes the realities we face in life. But this was a small community that was going through all of this loss and lament and grief. And Paul's closing words to them was to be joyful always and to give thanks in all circumstances. There are more Christian martyrs now than ever before in history. And historically, we've seen Christians have run into plague infested cities while everyone else was running away. Christians were today and back then should not be motivated by comfort, right? These early Christians were not motivated by the retirement savings. There had to be something much deeper, robust practices in their life that helped them endure what they were going through. So what are the habits that form their character? Habits that form character. Verse 16 says, rejoice always. Rejoicing is an integral part of Christian living. We see that in Galatians chapter 5, Philippians chapter 4, the subject of joy comes up in 1 Thessalonians already several times. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he said, Paul says, You become imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Paul is under no illusion of what they're experiencing he says you're receiving the word in the midst of severe suffering these aren't plastic christians they're not a happy clappy right um the spirit is the source of their deep inmost joy and then chapter 3 verse 9 paul asks a rhetorical question how can we thank god enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our god because of you Paul's joy is grounded in the knowledge that God is working in his church, in his people. And finally, in this same chapter, verse 9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Part of the reason that money is such a powerful motivator in our culture and in our lives is because Money can provide peace in some sense, right? Let's face it, uh, most people, or many people I should say, think about their financial well-being more than they think about their emotional well-being, spiritual well-being, and physical well-being. And uh, that's evidenced by the fact that many of us sacrifice all those well-beings, our emotional well-being, our spiritual well-being, and our physical well-being in order to make more money or to shore up our financial well-being. Uh, we, there's this temptation for us to hoard. Um, think about insurances or RRSPs or all of these things can provide us a sense of peace. But for Christians, there needs to be this much deeper wellspring of hope. 
the day of the Lord was not a day of judgment for those who are found in Christ. It's a day of redemption. It's eternity in God's presence. This is what um, the church in Thessalonica was clinging to when they lost their loved ones, when they were dying of persecution. Um, any great grief that we experience in our lives, these, this small church was experiencing similar things, right? The depth of it all. A question to ponder is many in the church of Thessalonica were dying or they had died and these words were offering them a deep sense of peace and joy. And their joy was rooted in their salvation and their future hope of resurrection. So consider inviting the joy of the spirit always, even in the midst of severe suffering. Verse 17 says, pray continually. The heartbeat of Paul was prayer. We see that um, throughout this letter. We see it in 2 Thessalonians. We see it in Romans. We see it in Colossians. He repeatedly asks readers to devote themselves in prayer. This is a common line in his epistles. Uh, to pray without ceasing. It's uh, not a literal eyes closed, hands clasped, fully immersive, prayerful state uh, because neither Jesus nor Paul nor the disciples uh, really lived that way, right? You couldn't drive, for instance, if you are always praying continually in that manner. Um, you couldn't chat with your parents. You couldn't write a dissertation, right? Jesus and his disciples would walk and, and look people in the eyes, right? Prayer is more than just closed eyes and hands clasped. It's an attitude of God consciousness and surrender that we are to embody at all times, right? I mean, perhaps you have that friend that just prays out loud with their eyes open um, in mid-conversation, right? These are great models of what it looks like uh, to be conscious of God's presence at all times. It's a practiced readiness. It's a yielding that you have as a posture, right? You can pray while talking to your neighbor, or you can pray while working on something. Um, it's a constant conversation with God as you go about your work and your life. Paul's heartbeat was prayer, and he asked the churches to devote themselves to pray, and here he says to pray continually or ceasingly, right, uh, without ceasing. Here he calls believers to pray without ceasing. And so perhaps spend some time drawing your attention to God uh, when you have those brief moments of uh, a breather throughout the day. Um, practice that readiness and that yielding to God and then start to incorporate that into the more active parts of your day. Um, begin to have God as, as a, this um, prayer and communication with God is this constant readiness as you go about whatever God calls you in your own professional setting or in your own home. Mundane responsibilities. And then Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So don't just give thanks for the good things that happen to you, but in all circumstances. Much easier said than done, I'm sure. Right. Uh, earlier in the letter, Paul speaks of the suffering that he was enduring for Christ. And he notes that they had suffered the same things. Right. C.S. Lewis says, quote, we ought to give thanks for all fortune. If it's good, because it's good. If it's bad, because it works in us patience, humility, 
contempt of this world and the hope of our eternal country, end quote. In your experience, have you found what C.S. Lewis says to be true? Can you attribute positive aspects of your life and your character and your spiritual formation to terrible, horrible experiences in your life, right? Seasons in your life that were extremely challenging. In retrospect, can you see how God was at work in that, informing who you are today, your character, your resilience, your perseverance, right? your hope. Furthermore, the verbs rejoice and pray and thanks, they're all plural. Right? Paul is not speaking to individuals. He's addressing the whole community. All of you rejoice, pray, give thanks. What is the church's family's responsibility? What is the, the gathering family, right, um, in carrying out these commands? In what ways are we mutually dependent on each other? In what ways does our joy affect the joy of someone else in our neighborhood, right? Or in, in what ways does our Thanksgiving model Thanksgiving for the people around us or our own families? The Greek form of all three of these commands links them together. Uh, it's these three commands that are connected with the phrase, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we only connect, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. It's all three of those commands that are linked to that phrase. This is a church that was grieving death of some of its members. This is a church that is grieving um, the 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 losses of everyday life as well. We have a God that's conquered death. God will raise them from the dead just as God has raised Christ Jesus from the death. We see that in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. The gospel provides the very basis of rejoicing and thanksgiving, even in the midst of grief. These weren't optional practices for people who follow Jesus. It was an expected outcome of life in the Spirit. The third point is life of spiritual discernment. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Paul's really passionate about the role of the Holy Spirit. We see that in his letters. It's integral to the transformation of a Christian. We see the fruit of the spirit in Galatians that the Holy Spirit cultivates in our life. Don't quench God's work and what he desires to do. And then he says, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Paul held prophecy in great regard. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. But the one who prophesies speaks to comfort uh, to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. But test them all, Paul clarifies, right? Test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Thessalonian scholar Charles Wanamaker says of this directive, because it's difficult to challenge what is uttered or done in the name of the Spirit, so-called spiritual gifts are open to abuse by those who wish to manipulate others, end quote. As important as spiritual gifts were, Paul recognized that they could be abused in order to cause disorder in the church. He talks about this in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Talk about that in more detail, but he charges the community to test them all. all you is plural. And the criteria of holding is what is good. The criteria is to hold what is good when you test that. 
Test with the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Test it not only against Scripture. Test it against the person and the character of Jesus Christ himself. Within Scripture, we have prophets, even celebrated ones, who call bears out of the forest to maul people who mock them or who call fire down from the heavens. But Jesus actually rebukes his followers for even suggesting should we call down fire from the heavens like the prophets did. The Pharisees, while following scriptures to the letter, they would often miss the heart of God. The letter of the law doesn't always capture the spirit of the law. Shane Claiborne had some very clear distinctives uh, that I saw on social media that to, to measure if our heart and ideas are in line with the life of Jesus, and I thought they were very profound. He says, quote, If it's not about loving your enemies, it's not the gospel of Jesus. If it's not about welcoming the stranger, it's not the gospel of Jesus. If it's not about the good news to the poor, it's not the gospel of Jesus. If it doesn't sound like Jesus or look like Jesus or love like Jesus, let's not call it Christianity, end quote. And finally, it's not on you. This is a pattern. It's not all on you. That's a pattern in the New Testament. Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. There's this pod, a pattern in Paul's writing where he talks about who we are, our identity, and then he talks about how to live in light of that identity, and then he follows with a statement about how God will accomplish it. His commands are rooted in who we are as Christians and what God will do. We worship a God who makes us holy. Right? God has given his Holy Spirit to us, and we have a role in yielding to the Holy Spirit, but there's a promise that God is faithful. The God who calls us is faithful, and he will do it. He will do it. This is so comforting, and this resonates on a really deep level with me in this cultural moment. I think we have to be attentive to the fair critiques and the shortcomings of evangelical Christians in recent decades. When we grieved, uh, we grieve about the pain and injustice that's happening in the world. Um, and, and, and it's easy to get overwhelmed with this idea that I can't do enough, right? Something new happens and you, you feel this conviction to either give or to volunteer, uh, which are good things and we should do. But there's so much that we can't do everything and it can often feel overwhelming. I know even as a pastor that it just feels like the work is never done. Um, it doesn't matter how many sermons or Bible studies or people that come to know Jesus, there's always more work to do. And I think we fall into this danger, um, sometimes from a positive perspective, but we fall into this danger of uh, a savior complex. We are not the Messiah, right? But we can point people to Jesus. I saw this message from a Seattle pastor, Eugene Cho, and he says, quote, breathe. Don't be so hard on yourself. Show yourself some grace. We simply can't do everything for everyone in every situation. Do what you can. Do it with a joyful heart, end quote. 
Grace isn't opposed to effort. We can participate in cultivating kingdom habits. We can participate in what God calls us to do, uh, to help our neighbor, to give to this missions or this local organization or local charity. Um, we can and we should do these things. But Paul says, focus your attention on God's fundamental role on sanctifying believers through and through. What God calls us to do, he is faithful and he will do it, right? Sanctify literally means set apart for a special use or a purpose. It's to make a believer distinct and holy. God's will is to sanctify you wholly, right? There's this partnership between God and those who are in Christ. For God's part, God is faithful. For your part, we need to yield to his process, to his Holy Spirit, to make us more like Jesus. And since God will accomplish it, the role of the believer is just to yield to the Spirit. And so think, what areas of your daily life and character is God inviting you to surrender to him? That God is calling you to allow him to transform. We're part of God's work. The restoration of the world is not all on you. Even our spiritual growth is not all on you. There's seasons where I, I get discouraged and I have loving sisters and brothers. Um, I'm so thankful for them that come around me and encourage me um, in those moments. But I was uh, encouraged, uh, discouraged. I have these seasons where it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, uh, I get discouraged about my own spiritual growth or I get discouraged about, my apologies, I get discouraged about uh, others, the spiritual growth of people I love and that are dear to me. And then uh, an elder of mine, uh, if you know my house, I have hundreds of plants, um, literally over a hundred plants in my home and they each uh, are, are unique and they require a different amount of water or a different amount of sunlight and uh, they grow at different paces. And an elder of mine, um, an elder in our church took me aside and was like, Josh, when you think about spiritual growth, and, and how it's not always visible or easily discernible. Do you think about the growth of your plants like that? And uh, it brought me great peace to think about it that way because yeah, plants uh, day by day don't have any discernible growth, uh, but over time they just grow incredibly large and a new leaf will uh, emerge periodically and this is the deep work that God does. There's the soil work, there's this root work um, that happens and it's not always easily discernible. It happens below the surface in our inner lives. But as the God who calls us is faithful and the spirit works in our lives, it develops uh, that fruit that becomes externally visible over time and over a faithful life. So the God who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Let's pray. Yeah, Holy Spirit, would you have your way with us? May you empower us to live out, um, develop these habits that shape our character, to pray continually, to rejoice always, to give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, may we lean into um, these habits that we are called to do uh, to produce that character within us. 
May you give us greater discernment and to hold on to what is good and to and then trust that this is not all on us. And so we praise you, God, and we thank you that the one who calls us to live this way is faithful and he will do it. So Holy Spirit, we invite you again to have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace to you. for tuning in we're back next week with another great message don't forget to check out our website thegatheringottawa.com and tune in next week to the gathering ottawa's message podcast